Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've forgotten who I am, I've been away for the last couple weeks and uh, in Uganda two weeks ago, ministering with King Jesus Church, and then last week with uh, our church plant, Midtree, where Jennifer and I visited to see our oldest son baptized. And let me just bring you greetings, first of all, from Pastor Raphael in, in Busega, Uganda, which is a suburb of the capital city there, Kampala. We've had a relationship with this church for the past five or six years. They're doing wonderfully, and it was such an encouraging time to be with Pastor Raphael and his, his family and his church. Something happened to me that's never happened um, in my time preaching. While I was preaching, a lady came up in the middle of my sermon and laid 10,000 shillings on the pulpit as I was preaching, which, is, which sounds like a lot, but it's about $2.70. And I asked Raphael what was going on, and he said, I, I guess she liked what you were saying. I don't know. So <laughs> I'll take it. I'm, I'm keeping that 10,000 shillings, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that in a special place. But the, the work of the Lord is just is really prospering there in, in Uganda through Pastor Raphael and his ministry. So really encouraged by my time with him. And then last week, Jennifer and I went to Midtree. A year ago, next Sunday, August 18th, will be a one-year anniversary for a group of people that we sent out from Crosspoint under the leadership of Will Hawk, who was on staff at our church for about 10 years. And he went and planted a church in Midland, about 10 miles away from here. For those of you that may be here or newer, haven't heard this, planted a church. We sent about 80 members from Crosspoint to start this new gospel preaching church in a neighboring suburb of Columbus. And uh, they're doing wonderfully. The, the word is being preached. Uh, what was so encouraging to me about being there was that I did not recognize um, many of the people there, meaning it was not just the 80 people that we sent out from cross point, but probably the majority of people that were there were newer folks, new believers or, or people that are newer to Midtree. So it was just an encouraging time. And uh, next week we'll pray for Midtree in their one year anniversary as a church. And praise God for the faithful witness that's going on there. Let me mention one other thing as well that I was away that I want to uh, pray for. And it just pastorally a word we prayed last week for these terrible shootings in our nation. And in particular, there's one that I want to mention, the shooting in El Paso. Since last week, it's come to light very specifically in the news that the shooter was targeting Mexicans, apparently. And just pastorally, I want to be sensitive to and acknowledge that by God's grace, we are a church that certainly is predominantly Caucasian, but is growing in ethnic diversity with Hispanics and African-Americans and Asian-Americans and others. And I want you to know that uh, aside, Christians can have differing political perspectives on all host of issues. We're going to you know, have to deal with another election cycle where, where there will be much discussion about immigration and what our country should do about that. I grew up in a house that I could actually see Mexico from uh, in, on the California border uh, when I was a child. And so this is uh, something that, that is near and dear to my heart. My point is, is that Christians can have different perspectives politically, but I want you, if you are, in particular, if you're an ethnic minority, and in particular the light of the last week, if you're Hispanic, I don't want your, I don't want my silence or our silence as a predominantly Caucasian church in any way by you to be interpreted as condoning. We, we mourn with you. We weep with you. Christians may have differing political convictions, but all Christians must have a love for their neighbor. And so one prayer that I want for Crosspoint is that we would be a place that is for every tribe and tongue, that we would be a place that, uh, as Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male or female. It doesn't, that verse isn't erasing our distinctions, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the most important thing about us. So I want you to know that if you're, uh, if you're a minority ethnically, you're loved, uh, you, you, and we weep with you in particular for the strain that you may feel and, and be under in our national conversation. And as we head into another election cycle, let's just pray for grace. Let's pray that God would be gracious to us as a church and we might be a voice of clarity and love and gospel witness to an onlooking city that a nation that is lost, is lost. Amen? Amen. Let me pray to that end and pray for us as we, as we get into the word. Father, uh, we are so grateful for the partnerships that you've given us. We pray and thank you for King Jesus Church in Uganda, for Pastor Raphael. What a, what a brilliant man he is in so many ways, so gifted and so selfless, pouring out his life in that poor area of his, of his home city. We pray for blessings on King Jesus Church and the pastors there that we were able to encourage. Lord, thank you for Midtree Church and Will Hawk and the wonderful work, the gospel work that's going on there. Lord, thank you. Lord, it's not about cross points and us growing bigger. It's about more churches, more pul pulpits filled with the, the clarity of gospel preaching, the beauty of Christ, the excellency of the gospel. That's what we need. The city needs more of that. We don't need shows. We don't need fancy worship. We don't need lights and smoke machines and just sexiness. We don't need that, God. We need the word of God rightly divided for people that are lost. We need churches that take the Bible seriously, who are for all peoples, all peoples. And Lord, we, we want to be that type of church that where there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, barbarian or Scythian, but Christ is all and in all. Lord, as we approach this election cycle, help us as a church to be clear about the gospel, gracious with one another when we differ. Help us to love our neighbors more than we love ourselves. And Lord, help us have our head on a swivel when we know that a brother or sister that may be in a different demographic than we are that might be feeling stressed, or burdened, or mourning, or threatened, Lord, may we assure that brother or sister of our love, and may you help us be a gospel voice that rises above the, the, just the sinful discussion that our nation is so trapped in. Help us with this now, Lord, as we look at your word. Zero us in on the beauty of this word that we will study this morning. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, open your Bibles to the table of contents. No, I'm serious. I want you to open. We're going to start a new series in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. But really, I want you to open your Bibles to your table of contents, because I want, I want to give you some handlebars for where we are. And by the way, this is a table of contents free zone. Malachi makes it a little easier because it's the last book of the Old Testament. I mean, if we were in Obadiah or Nahum, it might be a little more difficult. But I want you to look at the Old Testament table of contents. And you can see there these 39 books of the Old Testament. The first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are what we often call the Pentateuch, or the first five. The book of Moses, the law, and the early history of God's people, the nation of Israel. And then you see, then after the Pentateuch, Joshua, all the way through Esther, are the historical books. Th those books tell the story after the Pentateuch of God's dealings with his people. And that Really, Genesis through Esther is the timeline. It's the whole history of the Old Testament. Those are the historical books. Those books are primarily historical narratives. And then we see after, so the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Esther is a kind of special little case talking about God's people in captivity and the special way that he worked amongst his people. But Ezra and Nehemiah are the last two chronological books of the Old Testament. Testament. And then Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of, so Song of Solomon are these five books that we often call the writings. They're, 
They're books that speak about the experience of God's people during this history of the Old Testament. So they're not really chronologically moving the story forward. There are five books that are speaking. They're, they're obviously the, the book of worship and the book of wisdom and this Song of Solomon, this book of God's love for his people. They're, they're books of wisdom that are speaking about the experience of God's people with him, and they're not necessarily chronological. And then you see the beginning of the prophets with Isaiah all the way through Malachi. Sometimes they are uh, categorized as major prophets and minor prophets. Isaiah through Daniel are the major prophets. They're called major not because their message is more important than the minor prophets, but because they're, they're longer, they're larger. And then you see Hosea through Malachi are what we call the 12 or the minor prophets. And again, it's not that their message is minor. It's just that the, the actual writing is shorter. So you see that the Old Testament is really broken down into kind of three divisions, maybe four. You might call the first five books the Pentateuch, but they're primarily history all the way through Esther. And that is the historical narrative of the timeline from creation all the way up until uh, the end of the Old Testament time. Then these writings speak about the experience of God's people. And then the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, are all prophets that God raised up who are speaking a word to God's people at various points along the timeline from really Joshua all the way through Esther. So, so the messages of Isaiah through Malachi fit into the timeline along the way somewhere from Joshua through, through Esther. And we're looking now at this last word of, of a, the last prophet that God raises up before there's 400 years of silence until the New Testament and John the Baptist, who really is a kind of last Old Testament prophet that comes on the scene. In fact, at the end of Malachi, he's prophesied about that he will come. And so Malachi is where 400 years before the gospel, before Jesus' incarnation, before Matthew, and we're at the end of this era of the Old Testament and this last word, really the famous last words of God to his people before there's 400 years of silence. Okay, so since you're in the table of contents, go ahead and look at Malachi and see the page number. And then just go ahead and flip there. Malachi. We're going to read the first five verses and this morning, I want us to think about God's sovereign and gracious love. These first five verses, understanding these first five verses, are instrumental. They're, they're essential in understanding the message of Malachi. This is a short prophet, short book, only four chapters. I think we'll probably be in it six, seven, eight weeks at the most. But understanding this opening declaration is absolutely essential to understanding What's going on in Malachi? Well, we're going to catch ourselves up to the context and the setting as we go through it. But first, let's, let's read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, I want to give you a kind of outline of this text, which really will serve as an outline for our whole journey through Malachi in these next several weeks. Because Malachi is structured around these disputes or these complaints. There's about six complaints that the people have with God in that are being recorded. It's a kind of courtroom scene where God is saying something 
And then the people are questioning God. They're saying, well, how? In fact, this word, this, this question, starting with how, comes up about six or seven times. The people responding to God, well, how have you loved us? Or how have we failed you in this way? Or how is this the case? How, how are, why are you doing this, God? So it's centered around, these four chapters are centered around six disputes or objections that Israel is bringing up to God in his statements. And the first one here is that they are asking how, how he loves them. And so this, here's the outline. We, we, we're going to see, as we work through, we're going to see God's declaration, Israel's question, and then God's response. God's going to say something. He's going to declare something. Israel's going to question it, and then... God is going to respond, and we're going to see that pattern all the way through Malachi. So let's look at God's declaration, what he's saying here in, in this opening, this opening uh, part of Malachi. He says in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So there's this prophet Malachi. His name literally means messenger. We don't really know much about him at all other than that he was a man that God raised up to bring his word to God's people. And the setting at the time of Malachi is towards the very end of the history of the Old Testament. So God's people, remember they were, you know, all the way back in Genesis, we read how God created everything. And then, you know, we see sin enter the world and it's caused dismay and and, and death, and, and, and people are scattered all over the, the face of the earth. And God chooses one man, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he says, through this one man, I am going to make a nation. And then the rest of the Old Testament, from Genesis 12 on to the end, is God's dealing with his people, Israel. And to Israel, he promises them land and blessing, and he says that through you, I am going to make a nation, and I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And he promises them, in a temporal sense there, the promised land. He's going to, I'm going to give you a land, the Canaan land, and I'm going to put you in it. And eventually he does. He puts them in this Canaan land, but because of their disobedience, they find themselves in slavery in Exodus. And then we see that, that God brings them out of that captivity in, in Exodus, and he brings them back into the promised land. And they're in the promised land, and he gives them a king. And then the, they're disobedient some more. Really, the whole Old Testament is a kind of story of the Christian life. He saves us, and we're still disobedient, but he's patient with us, and he promises to finish the work that he started. And that's what's happening in Israel. They have this, this king bad kings, the, Israel as a nation divides, they're a divided kingdom, and they, because of their disobedience, God is through many of the prophets saying, I am going to bring a foreign pagan country, a foreign pagan king to come conquer you because of your disobedience. And so that's just a word for us to, to remember that God is in control of human history and all events. God prophesies that there's going to come this Babylonian empire that's going to come and punish God's people by taking them out of the promised land and into captivity. And that happens. God's people are in captivity and God is not, has not given up on them, though. And he says, I'm going to bring another foreign king, this time this Persian king. And he's going to come, and he is going to conquer the Babylonian king who took you into captivity for the first time. And now you're going to be in Persian captivity, but the Persian king is going to be more sympathetic to you, and he's going to let you actually go back to the promised land and start to rebuild Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's what happens at the end of the Old Testament. God's people are in captivity by the Persian, under the hand of the Persian Empire, but this Persian king allows God's people to return, or at least a portion of them, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed the previous time that they were taken into captivity. And so, God's people are back. This is the end of the Old Testament, and this is the time that Malachi is speaking into. God's people are back in Jerusalem, having rebuilt the city. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are all about, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. But they're not really feeling it. God has promised that there would be a full and final victory, but they're not experiencing that, that full victory. They're still in captivity. And God is telling them here by Malachi in verse 2, 
I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. That's God's declaration. In the midst of a people who are complaining and bitter about the fact that things aren't like they totally want them to be. And that's what the second part is. We see Israel's question in the second half of verse 2. It says, but you say, how have you loved us? So this is Israel speaking back to God. How have you loved us? Israel is doubting God's love. And that's the situation in Israel. I just explained. God has brought his people back to the land. And he has promised them prosperity. In fact, just one prophet over, if you go to the left to Zechariah, the beginning of Zechariah chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, listen to what God promised through that prophet to the people about what he would do in the nation of Israel. He says, Zechariah chapter 1 verse 16 and 17, therefore says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And so they're back physically in Jerusalem, but they're certainly not, and we'll see this as we go further in Malachi, they're certainly not experiencing the prosperity that God had promised them in Zechariah. And they're still under foreign rule by the Persians. And so that's causing Israel to complain to God. And he says to them, I've loved you. And they say back to him, well, how have you loved us? And let's just pause to just admit that we can kind of have a kind of a distance as we look at this and think, oh, well, how could, they, how could they think that? I mean, just remember how God brought you out of all these things. But friends, this is the Christian experience, isn't it? This, this is that you can come to a church where the gospel is preached and the Bible is opened up. You can, have the, you can have theological knowledge stored up in your brain. You can, you can know the Bible as well as anybody from, from cover to cover. You can have systematic theology and the the good doctrine stored up in your heart, and you can still feel very distant from truly experiencing God's love. Amen? Amen? Okay, just wondering, is this a safe place to be real here? Okay, that, that, that's the Christian experience. And that's what Israel is experiencing now. They weren't experiencing God's love. They were going through the motions spiritually. And this was leading to, which we'll get to in the rest of Malachi, it was leading to disobedience, sin, and indifferent living. And here's God's response to their question about whether or not He loved them. This is so interesting and so informative about where God goes and how He answers the doubting of His love. Look at the second half of verse 2. This is God's response. He says, he takes them all the way back nearly to the beginning of Israel as a nation. Back to the early chapters of Genesis, or the midway point of Genesis. And he says in verse 2, the second half there, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So he's taking them back to the middle of Genesis, where there were these two twins in the womb of their mother, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. And God gives a word. We'll read it in just a moment when we look more closely at God's love and the nature of God's love. God says to this mother, there's two twins in your, in your womb, and it was customary for the older child to be the inheritance, inheritor of the blessing. And God says the younger twin is actually going to be the one that I choose. So the older will serve the younger. And God, in Genesis, is telling Israel that your your beginning, your formation as a nation is happening not by your prerogative, but by my divine prerogative. And he's telling them, this is how I've loved you. I started you as a nation, and he's taking them all the way back to their early roots as a nation, through these twins that are in a mother's womb, and he's saying that there's these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and through Jacob's line, 
comes Israel, and through Esau's line comes this nation that is spoken of here in Malachi of Edom. And there's these two nations in this mother's womb. They hadn't done anything good or bad. Twins in the womb can't sin yet. And God says, I'm going to take that one. I'm going to love that one. And he uses this word, I hate. I hate that one. It's a, it's, it's a strong word in English. It's a rejection. He says, in one sense, I'm going to pick that one and I'm going to reject that one. That's what he's saying. And he's saying of Israel, you're Jacob and Edom comes from Esau. And so I have loved you because I've loved you. Before you were even born, I selected you. That's, that's, that's God's point and his proof of how he has loved Israel. And he says, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. This is what he's saying he's done to the nation that comes from Esau, which is Edom. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And that, in fact, did happen. The nation of Edom that came from Esau was scattered and defeated, and they do not exist anymore. And God is saying, that this is proof that I have loved you. So before he does the rest of the word of Malachi, before he rebukes them for their disobedience, he starts off with this word of love for his people. And I want us to consider and look at God's love for his people. Two things that I want us to see about God's love for Israel and for his people, those who are trusting in Christ. God's love for his people is one, unconditional. It's unconditional. That's what he's saying to Israel here in Malachi, and that's what he's saying to us if we're in Christ. What do we mean by unconditional? That's a word that we throw around a lot. I want us to make sure we understand it. It means that God's love for Israel is not based on any conditions in them. It's not based on anything that they bring to the table. His love is not earned by anything existing in Israel, which is moving God to pick them over Esau. That's what unconditional means. Let's, let's actually read the word to this mother in Genesis, Rebecca, in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. Genesis 25, verses 19 through 23. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And those two nations we know become later on Israel and Edom. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And this is where he reverses all sort of human logic. He says, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, I'm choosing to give my blessing to the younger one, which ends up being Jacob. That, that's, what Paul is, that's, what, that's what God is saying here. He's saying that I am choosing and he's reminding Israel that he has chosen them not because of anything good that they've done. And that's the exact logic that Paul uses in Romans to describe our, our salvation. Now I know you're thinking, well, Brad just can't get away from Romans. And there may be some truth to that. But this verse is, is specifically alluded to in Romans chapter 9. Let, let's read it. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through, through 12. Paul is taking up this question of whether or not God's word has failed to make a people in Israel, through Israel. And he's saying, no, no. It, what it means to truly be an is, a, a Jew is, is to have faith in Jesus. And all of this shadow of the Old Testament that we're reading about in Malachi becomes clearer 
in Jesus. And he says, but it is not in verse 6, Romans 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And he brings up that story by saying, look, God, even back before in Grandpa Abraham, he was 100 years old, Sarah's 90-something, she's barren, and God is going to make a 90-something-year-old woman have a child. That's how Israel starts. In verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to verse 11, this is the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament. This is the New Testament shedding light on the Old Testament. This is the inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul, explaining to us what's going on in Genesis 25, verse 11. Though they were not yet born, speaking of these twins in the womb, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or choosing might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that if you're a Christian, it's not because there was anything good in you that commended you to God. God loves you because he loves you. And that's his point to Israel back in Malachi. What he's saying to Israel in Malachi is a shadow of what becomes the reality of salvation in the New Testament. And at this point, he's saying to the people who are complaining and who are doubting God's love, listen, if you're doubting my love for you, it's not because you're, you're sinning right now or you're indifferent or you're in captivity or things aren't as they can be. Don't look at the situation around you as a gauge of God's love, you, love for you because before there ever even was a situation, I chose you, I loved you because I loved you. Outside of circumstances, Outside of your obedience, outside of your, your works, outside of, of whatever's going on in you right now, I have loved you because I love you. And to a people who are doubting God's love and goodness, this was a sovereign word of grace. I love you because I love you, not because of anything good in you. My choice of you, God is saying to Israel, is outside of you. It's not because of you. It's in spite of you. And so if I didn't start loving you because of anything good in you, I won't stop loving you because of anything bad in you. That's a really important point. That's what he's assuring Israel of in this moment. So how does this this unconditional nature of God's love answer Israel's question? Well, they deserve nothing. God has loved them with the deepest and freest kind of love. It's a chosen love. It's an electing love. It's a sovereign love. It's a love that's not coerced or earned. And if it's not earned, it can't be lost when it's not earned. Listen to how... Titus chapter 3 describes this type of love in salvation. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and loving goodness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now friends, I know this. I know this is true. I know Romans 9 is true. I know what, what, what Malachi is saying to the people for God is true. I know that God loves me not because of any talent or gift or week of holiness or quiet time or, or how I'm doing. I know he loves me simply because he loves me. But friends, 
Don't we doubt that sometimes? Man, because we are people, because we're finite, because we're still walking through this fallen world, because there is a fog of the sanctification war that we're all fighting that will make life and experience confusing. And we all experience it. And his word to God's people in the Old Testament, his word to us today, is that I have loved you simply because I have loved you. In fact, we won't take the time to read it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you might want to write that down and read that later on. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I believe it's verses 6 and 7. He's speaking to Israel, and he's just reminding them. He says, listen, I didn't love you because you were greater in number than the other nations. I didn't love you because there was anything good in you. I love you because I love you. And if you're a believer in Jesus right now, you need to know, you need to be assured of God's sovereign, gracious, unconditional love in your life. So God loves us unconditionally. He loves his people unconditionally, and he loves Israel and his people in an everlasting way. God's love for his people is everlasting. That's the second point I want us to see. It's a this word, I have loved you, the phrase in Hebrew, it's the perfect form of the, of the verb there. It means it's outside of time. There's really no temporal aspect to it. It's, 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 it's past, present, and future in a sense. Listen to what Lamentations chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, a beautiful portion of Scripture. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord loves his people unconditionally, and he loves them with an everlasting love. And take note, let's take note here as we, as we come to an end of looking at these five verses and before we step off into the rebuke that is much of the rest of Malachi, take note of how God starts off his word to a complaining people that are questioning his love. In just a few chapters, the rest of the chapter, he's going to rebuke them, but he starts by reminding them of his love. I mean, he's God, he's created them, he's done everything for them, and they have the audacity to whine to him. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a a, a New Testament letter where God, uh, through the Apostle Paul, absolutely rebukes and upbraids this carnal church in Corinth for their all sorts of sinful practices. I mean, they're worshiping, uh, you know, they're, they're dabbling with, 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 with uh, idolatry, uh, former practices that they used to be involved in, all sorts of division and backbiting and carnality. And that's what most of 1 Corinthians is. It's a kind of rebuke. But, but he starts off 1 Corinthians by expressing Paul does his love for the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God starts off his word in Malachi and Corinthians to a doubting sinful people with a word of love. I am am encouraged by that. And this is just a, a word about how we should model that love of God by just being gentle with one another, shouldn't we? It's amazing to me how quickly I can get upset at other people in the body of Christ and expect just unceasing grace from them towards me. But, but as we read this here, Malachi and Corinthians reminds us that God, God is loving. So let's conclude with this, just apply this to our lives. God's unconditional, everlasting love, what should it produce in his people? This is the point of Malachi. This is what he's getting to. The first thing I think it should produce in us is a humility that leads to contentment and uproots a bitter and complaining attitude. God's unconditional, everlasting, gracious, sovereign, electing love 
in the lives of his people should produce in us first a humility that leads to contentment and uproots a bitter and complaining attitude. That's what Malachi is. It's arranged around the complaints of the people and God's response to them, where he is going to rebuke them severely. But he starts off with love. I have loved you because I loved you. And this should produce in us humility. If he, he loves me not because you know, I was doing good stuff for him, not because there was anything good in me that he saw that he wanted on his team. He loves me because he loves me. Jeremiah Burroughs was a, a, a Puritan pastor, and he wrote this little book. Actually, it was a sermon that we've turned into a book, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I'm chastened by this. Listen to how he describes this kind of contentment that springs from this understanding of who God is. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In other words, you're, you're back in the promised land, but you're still under Persian rule, and things aren't going as well for you as you think they should. God's in control, and he has purposes. And, and you can be content in that. Apply your own situation. It's, it's not, life is not all that you want it to be. And the gospel calls us to an understanding of what God has done to love us in Christ outside of ourselves, not because of anything in us, but simply because of His grace, His free grace should produce in us a kind of contentment. But let's not believe it because Jeremiah Burroughs says it, although I think what he says is right. Let's believe it because the Bible says it. Listen to how Philippians chapter 4 puts it. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, because he was in prison at this time for preaching the gospel in Rome, and he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then verse 13, which is so often quoted and oftentimes out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not meaning I can win this game or you know, just some, some victorious thing, but I can be brought low or abound. I can learn how to be hungry or have plenty, how to be in need or in abundance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when I consider how he has loved me, not because of anything good in me, it should produce in me a kind of humility that leads to a contentment that will uproot a bitter and complaining attitude in my heart where I am not like the people of Israel in Malachi's day, like this incessant child in the back of a car saying, how much longer? How much longer? That's the picture I get of God's people in Malachi. When will we get there? And God's word to them before he rebukes them is, I have loved you. I have loved you. And secondly, it should produce in us a posture of worship and obedience that brings glory to God through our lives. And we're going to see as we progress through Malachi how important this is. This is, I think, the main point of, of Malachi. Not just that God has loved us sovereignly, that He's loved us with an unconditional love, and that He will love us forever, as glorious as those things are. But that type of love should cause us to worship and obey Him, which brings glory to God. In fact, lives that don't respond to God with worship and obedience in some measure of sanctification give evidence to the fact that they've truly never experienced God's love. A 
a false charge that is often laid against this understanding of God's sovereign, gracious, unconditional love is that it will lead to cheap grace. Well, God has loved me because he's loved me, so I can do whatever I want to do. And that's the exact opposite message of the gospel. And it's the exact opposite message of Malachi. He's loved you because he's loved you, not because of anything good in you. But when you experience that saving love that God has for his people, it transforms your heart. In fact, you can only experience it if God gives you a new heart. And with that new heart comes new desires to obey him and glorify him and enjoy him forever, as the old confessions say. And God is going to call them to obedience after he assures them of his love for them, not because of their obedience, but he's going to call them to obedience because of his love in the rest of Malachi. In the next section that we'll look at next week, he's going to look at polluted worship. And I, I think we, we need that word in America. We, we come in, we, it's all about us, man. It's just, don't, I'm, don't get me started. I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like Mr. Wilson. I know. Just Dennis the Menace's neighbor. I just, I'm getting grumpy in my old age. But humbly, I think I have a point. <laughs> I think much of American church culture worship is just indulgent carnality. And, and Malachi, God is through Malachi in the next passage, the end of chapter 1, is going to rebuke the polluted offerings of the worship of the people. You know, they're just holding out the best. It's just, you know, worship is kind of optional. Let's do what we want to do. Just give God this jacked up cow that isn't the, you know, the best, just whatever. This diseased fruit, worms going through. It. God, here, have this. And he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna lambaste them for the fact that they're offering polluted worship. And, and then the first part of chapter 2, he's going to talk about how the leaders are just selfish, selfish leaders that are not leading their people to, to true worship. And, and, and we'll, we'll turn the arrows at, at the leadership. And then, and then in chapter 3, he's going to, or at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's going to talk about their faithlessness in marriage and, and just how they're divorcing and, and the, the fact that this divorce, this breakdown in the covenant of marriage in Israel is, is, is a poor witness to an onlooking world. And he's going to call them to faithfulness in marriage. And he's going to call them in faithfulness in the way that they treat one another and the sojourner and how they shouldn't be wicked to one another and take advantage of one another. And then he's going to call them to, to, to be faithful in their giving and how they're robbing the Lord of their tithe. And all this is going to lead to this revival that we see at the end of Malachi and Malachi chapter 3 towards the end. And so God is going to say, it's not just that I loved you. It's not just that I saved you. It's not just that I rescued you, not because of any good in you, but now realizing that should produce good in you. Do you see that? I didn't save you because you were good, but because I saved you, now I've enabled you to obey me. And so Malachi is going to be like an Old Testament shadow for the New Testament Christian of God's encouragement and rebuke to call us to fight sin, to fight indifference, to fight spiritual malaise. And we need, man, we need that. I need that. You need that. American churches need that. And he says that he will do this all for the renown of his name. So just go to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter. Let me just read ahead. Malachi chapter 4. It's just six verses. And he's pointing to this day when, when all that Israel longs for will come to pass. So he's not only saying, I've loved you and now obey me, but he's saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, because there's coming a day when I will separate my people from the rest of the world, when judgment will come, when you will be finally and fully vindicated because of my grace, and I will be your all in all. He's speaking of this great day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day and by the way, the reason, let's not forget, the reason, if you're a Christian, the reason we are not in that oven 
is not because we weren't arrogant and we weren't evildoers. It's because God loved us because he loved us, right? That that day, the day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Speaking of those that are outside of Christ, speaking of those that aren't trusting in him. Verse two, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that sound like Romans 16 where he says that you shall trample Satan under your feet? You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I think this is speaking prophetically clearly to the coming of Christ in his first and second coming in a sense. Remember, verse 4, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, Verse 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I think chapter 4 is prophesying about the coming of Jesus. In one sense, in his first coming and his second coming. Jesus will come. God, How will God finally make his people free from this spiritual apathy? How will he do it? How will he bring about this obedience fully and finally? How will he glorify his name? By bringing his son Jesus who will die on the cross to bear God's punishment for his people, to defeat sin, death, and the grave, and to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave so that all who are trusting in him, in him are those that, God's lo- that God loves. And in Malachi's day, they're looking forward to this coming king. And we are looking back to his first coming. And we also, too, are looking forward to that time when he will come again and he will right every wrong. He will cure every disease. He will heal every broken heart. We long for that day when Jesus will come and healing will rise in its wings and we will be with him forever and ever. But now the Lord is telling us, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have loved you. Be assured of that. Be assured of that, my people. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this and apply to our lives this word, this ancient word. What do these words written so long ago have to do with us? They have everything to do with us. We are like Israel at the end of this Old Testament time. We too grumble and complain. We too are still struggling with our flesh. We too are still breaking covenant with you and with each other. And we we often wonder in the, the recesses of our heart, how have you loved us, God? And you remind us through Malachi as you reminded Israel that you have loved us simply because you love us. And as we go on, Lord, let that produce in us obedience as we see your word to your people. Let it produce in us faithfulness. Let it produce in us humility. Let it produce in us worship. Lord, let it produce in us the pursuit of God-glorifying lives. Lord, take these words Take this word of love and assurance that you spoke to your people and speak it to our hearts today. And I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.